Right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got an awesome Wednesday morning show for you today, including my first guest today, Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer. Lots to talk to him about this morning. Chief Palmer, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, Chief, let's start first with the uh, the story that's been in the headlines here the last 24 hours or so, and that's the uh, the lack of a vaccine mandate here for Vancouver police officers. So so no mandatory vaccination for Vancouver police. How? Why not? Yeah, well, it's uh, you know, a complex issue, so I'm happy to walk you through it, Mike. And I know that uh, lots of discussion on it. Uh, I'll just start by saying that we do want all uh, VPD members to be vaccinated, both our sworn officers and our civilian professionals, and we're encouraging all staff to do that. And I think it's also important to note that the vast majority of our members are, in fact, vaccinated. I mean, we're just a microcosm of the general population, and most people that work here are vaccinated. It's a very small number that aren't. Um, but... For various reasons, you know, people have religious, medical reasons, whatever it may be, there's a small number that are not vaccinated. So the process that we've come up with, which is similar to other, uh, many other police agencies in British Columbia and other major cities across the country, is that we're requiring officers and civilian professionals by the end of December to indicate and show that they are uh, double vaccinated or not. And if they're not, then that small number of people will be subject to regular COVID-19 testing on a regular basis uh, on their own time at their own expense. And this is going to ensure a safe workplace. And we are meeting all public safety, public health order, WorkSafe BC requirements. And it's similar landscape to other police agencies, uh, school boards, what you're seeing in other work sectors as well. Right, but we do, we also see other first responders in the city do have a, a vaccine mandate, like firefighters, as I understand, required to get vaccinated. Also, if you take a look just next door in Surrey, where the new Surrey Police Department is having a mandatory vaccination rule there for Surrey police officers. Let me play this short clip here for you, uh, Chief Palmer, of uh, Norm Lipinski, the chief of the Surrey Police Service, on this point, and then I'll get your thoughts. Anybody that would want to be hired by the Surrey Police Service, whether it's a recruit that will ultimately go to the Justice Institute of BC to get trained, or somebody from an experienced uh, background uh, will have to be uh, mandated uh, to be vaccinated. There's that Surrey police chief there, mandatory vaccination for police officers there. I mean, if it's if it's okay for Surrey, how come how come Vancouver can't get this done? Yeah, so a couple of things there. So, I mean, the one thing that is similar with Surrey is that every new recruit that we're hiring, anybody that's coming into VPD does have to be double vaccinated. So that is part of our vaccination policy. But, you know, Surrey is dealing with a very small number of people. They've only got about 150 staff. We've got about 2,000 people that work here in Vancouver because we're a long-established police department. So we had to look at what other large agencies across the country are doing. And, you know, we looked at the landscape in places like Toronto where they did mandate vaccinations for all staff. And now they've had to put over 200 police officers and civilian professionals on unpaid leave. And in this current environment that's very challenging for policing in Vancouver and Um, You know, a lot of things that our officers are facing, I'm not going to put a bunch of officers on unpaid leave and leave uh, the front line short for providing public safety in our city. Okay, was this your call or was this up to the Vancouver Police Board? Yeah, so we actually consulted with medical and legal experts and with the Vancouver Police Board. We're not part of the city of Vancouver, as I think you know. We're separate. We're not employees of the city. We're employed by the Vancouver Police Board. 
And it is a board policy, but uh, on recommendations from medical and legal experts and HR experts that we did work with uh, with our board on this policy. Okay, following that one closely, lots more are going on here in the city right now, including the Vancouver Police Department budget. And as usual, there was there was another fight over this and the, the budget at the police department, but the budget went through last night at City Council. Is that correct? Yeah, it did. I was very happy with the outcome of the uh, City Council vote and pleased to see how that played out. Okay, what is the increase for the Vancouver Police Department budget? So we did get uh, an increase overall of 7.93%, and that includes, uh, in total dollars, that's about $25.1 million. And that includes two things. That includes money that we needed um, from the police board-approved budget to continue on operations into 2022 without uh, further reductions like we did receive last year from the city. And it also accounted for collective agreement increases, which just by coincidence happened to come down within a couple of days of the the council vote. So that was folded in there as well. That's why that dollar amount seems quite high. Right. Yeah. So a nearly an 8% budget lift. And there is some grumbling uh, today about the overall property tax increase in the city, 6.35%, well above the inflation rate. What can you say, and of course the police budget is a huge part of the Vancouver city budget, like what can you say to Vancouver residents who are looking at this property tax increase and saying like, wow, what am I getting for my money here? Well, I'm not going to talk about the entire increase to the city budget because it includes, you know, the vast majority of things in that budget are not policing, but yeah. 20% of it is and happy to be accountable for that. But we've been 20% of the city's budget for over three decades and we've mapped it back to 1990 and that's never really changed. It's fluctuated within a percentage or two and that's the same to this day. So uh, roughly 20% of the budget But I'm glad to see that the city did focus, and they heard on this from citizens as well, like on a regular basis, that, you know, we want you to focus on core services and essential services, police, fire, um, you know, engineering, library, parks, the core services that the city is responsible for. And public safety is a huge and important aspect of what the city is responsible for. Our officers are out there doing an incredible job every single day under very, very challenging circumstances, Mike. You know, they're dealing with unprecedented number of protests in our streets. We've got a a gang conflict going on in Vancouver and the entire region. We've got the pandemic going on, as we talked about earlier. We've got an opioid crisis. We've got urban decay in the north half of the city. We've got violent shoplifters. We've got stranger assaults at about 4.7 every day, which is unprecedented in my 34 years in the police service. So there's a lot of things happening right now, very challenging for our officers, but also for the community. And we heard loud and clear from businesses and from many residents that public safety was something that they were concerned about, and we have to make sure that we maintain that. Speaking of Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer, let me ask you about the other major operation that the VPD reported out on this week, and that is the the shoplifting ring that that was busted here and uh, some of the stolen property that was being uh, sold in the downtown east side. Uh, It sounds like you guys had some undercover officers there in a major operation, hundreds of arrests and charges here. Um, Can you talk about that uh, downtown east side street market down there? and whether there's a lot of stolen property being sold down there. Is that is that your understanding? Yeah, so happy to talk about that. You're right. We did have two projects that we did go out with on Monday. One of them was Project Arrow, and that related to uh, violent shoplifters that we've seen in the north half of the city, in particular in the downtown core, where we've got people going in brazen, brazenly stealing, um, you know, with no regard for staff or citizens. If you get in their way, they'll just 
push you or punch you or pull pepper spray out or pull a knife on you. So, you know, that level of violence that we've seen come up the entire west coast of North America and California and, and heading north, that trend is in Vancouver. So we did put a project forward where we arrested uh, 195 people and are laying 330 charges. And then concurrent to that, we also had another project going on, which is related um, to the downtown east side market. So, you know, that market, I think, started with good intentions. It was to assist uh, binners and marginalized people in the community. But unfortunately, over time, we've had uh, criminals and people that are taking advantage of people and basically sending them out sort of shoplifters for hire to steal steal um, property from stores. And they're selling it, you know, still in packages with all the tags on it in the market or just outside the market. And we were shutting down a couple of significant fences who were buying that property and then reselling it. What, what do you say to the people who support that market down there and say this is like a survi- street survival trade going on down there and it's important for the people who are homeless and poor? And I've, I've already seen some, some comments on social media from anti-poverty activists saying this is poor bashing when the Vancouver police ad- advise the public, look, don't go down there and buy stuff because there's stolen property down there. How do you respond to that? Well, I think it's like everything in Mike. You got to have a in life, Mike. You got to have a balance and look at both sides of this equation. And I understand that certain um, advocacy groups wouldn't be happy about that. But um, I'll just say to the general public that we're all for supporting people that are marginalized, that are suffering from homeless and poverty issues, and uh, are really struggling in life. And I think that you know those intentions of the market are good, and we want to see people like that supported and you know assist with their well-being. But by the same token, we're not going to allow you know, organized criminals and people that are not homeless, are not addicted, are not uh, suffering from poverty issues that are taking advantage of people and having them steal from stores like, you know, London Drugs and IGA and Sephora and just, you know, going through picking like locusts through the stores downtown and just stealing, you know, left, right and center and then selling things in the original packaging with price tags on it and sometimes security tags still on it in a market like openly selling stolen property we just can't allow that so there's a balance in life and you know help the marginalized people but don't let the you know hardcore criminals profit from this sort of uh enterprise and take advantage of people chief palmer thank you for your time today i appreciate it thanks mike always great to talk to you Uh, checking out that city of vancouver budget passed by city council last night Uh, property taxes in vancouver going north going up 6.35 percent that's the increase in your property taxes in the city of vancouver let's check in with john cooper now running to be the mayor of vancouver for the mpa john good morning mike thanks a lot for coming on what do you think of that property tax hike well, I think it's a bit outrageous, actually. You know, we look at Delta at 2.99, Richmond at 3.86, and Vancouver, in spite of the mayor's uh, motion he put forward to hold taxes at 5%, uh, then he goes along at the last minute and throws in a climate levy yeah. <laughs> uh, to even add to that to that number. So it's out of control, and um, I think we need a deep dive into this budget because, you know, we, you were just talking about the downtown uh, east side street market, yeah, the city puts three hundred thousand dollars into that market. I'd like to know a lot of the other numbers that are going into similar type things around the city, and I think we need an audit to find out and uh, and see what are the outcomes because that seems like a lot of money. And uh, everybody in Vancouver knows if something gets stolen out of your truck, out of your house, 
you go down to the market and see if you can find it. It's shocking. Yeah, the Vancouver police this week, uh, a major operation that they reported out on that involved that street market with stolen property being fenced down there, uh, hundreds of charges, hundreds of people uh, charged. Uh, so it sounds like it sounds like there's a lot of stolen property being going through that market. Does that does it, should that surprise anybody? I mean, anytime I've driven by there, I thought, come on, I mean, that must be a lot of stolen goods down there. Well, I, you know, the, the mayor has been missing in action on this. Uh, I have a quote from him in 2018 when, his, when he was running, and he was asked about that market, and he said it's a symptom of a larger problem. He said, pointing to the lack of affordable housing and the opioid crisis, illegal vending is going to exist whether or not the city does anything. Well, I would suggest at the very least, the city should not be pouring $300,000 a year into that market. That, to me, is just an absolute disaster. What, what do you say to, like, I've already heard from some anti-poverty activists who were upset that the Vancouver police are advising the public, look, don't shop down there. There's a lot of stolen property there, so don't do it. You're just, you're just getting involved in the commission of an offense, so don't shop down there. And some anti-poverty, anti-poverty activists are saying, no, don't do that. Like, this is, people are trying to survive down there. They're homeless. They're poor. Right. Well, nobody is saying that we shouldn't do what we can. And I think yeah. we need to do a lot more in terms of treatment uh, for folks in the downtown east side. But it's pretty obvious. I mean, you see it all over the city. You see, you know, uh, folks going down the street with a shopping cart with three bicycles stacked on top. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's quite obvious that those are stolen. And um, we need a mayor who's going to stand up and say, no, this, we're not going to tolerate this in, uh, in our city. It's, it's, it's outrageous. And, and uh, these people are being used and profited by, by criminals, and, and that's just not the way Vancouver should be run. Speaking to Vancouver Park Board Commissioner John Cooper, he's running to be the mayor of Vancouver in next year's election. Just going back to that budget, John, in the 6.35% property tax increase, I mean, you know, you compare that to inflation, like inflation's running around, what, 4.5%. So, you know, this is over the price of inflation in a city that is is already, the cost of living here is already pretty brutal. So, you like you're yeah. saying, yeah, go ahead. I'm certainly hearing that from residents. And, uh, you know, Chief Palmer was on and, and he explained that the police budget is always about 20% of the budget. And that's a core service. And as he said, police, fire, parks, library and engineering, those are the things we should concentrate on in our city. People want value for their tax dollar. And, um, you know, we, we live in a beautiful city. I think we have a really bright future if we can get our act together. Uh, you know, we got to clean up the streets a bit. We've got to make it safe. We've got to make sure the lights are on. And, well, what, what, what would you uh, cut, though? Is fixed up. What would you well, cut, I'll tell though? You, I would like an audit because I'd like to find out about all these sort of programs that are embedded into this budget. You know, we know we've got 40, I think 40, last count, 42 people in communications at City Hall. <laughs> uh, when when Philip uh. Ohm was the mayor, I think he had one. Now, that's, you know, things have changed. We have social media. Nobody's saying we go back to one. But I think those are the kinds of things we need to really look at and say, okay. shouldn't it be the councillors and the mayor that are communicating to the public? All right. Thank you. Thank you, John Cooper, for being here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about all the problems with that Arrive Can smartphone app for people who are driving across the border into the United States. I'll tell you, in the last couple of days, I've received a ton of emails from listeners on this topic, people who have just ducked down across the border maybe to fill up for a tank of gas, and then they come back. There's trouble with the Arrive Can app, and in many cases, they're told to quarantine because the app was not working properly, or maybe they didn't know how to work 
work it or maybe they don't have a smartphone to have the app in the first place. Now, this came up this week in the House of Commons in Ottawa. Have a listen to this. Conservative MP Raquel Dancho here uh, grilling the government on this. Here's how that sounded. Mr. Speaker, in order for Canadians to cross the land border from the U.S. into Canada, they have to upload their proof of vaccination to the government's official app called ArriveCan. But this requirement has been poorly communicated, to say the least. Now, if you fail to do this, Canadians are finding out at the border upon returning home that they will be punished by their government with a mandatory two-week quarantine, and there's absolutely no recourse for them. MPs have received hundreds of complaints about this, Mr. Speaker, and Canadians deserve reasonable accommodation at their own land border. Yeah, I'm not surprised that MPs have received a lot of complaints on this issue. Let's discuss now with my guest, Raquel Dancho, Conservative MP. You just heard her there in the House of Commons. I'm pleased she could join us today. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks, Mike, for having me. It's great yeah, to be with you again. I, I appreciate it a lot. And this is a top of mind issue for a lot of people. I've received a lot of emails on this, and I know you probably have too. Like, what are you hearing from constituents who are having problems with this app? Well, they just feel very outraged and mistreated by their government. As far as they were aware, they did everything they were supposed to. They stepped up. They got vaccinated. In many cases, they were triple vaccinated. In other cases, if they were in the United States, uh, they had received both or three of their vaccines and they had their negative tests, which is required if you're there for longer than 72 hours. They would come to the border with all of this evidence, all this official paperwork, everything that they needed, but it just wasn't loaded onto an app. And because of not having this app, they had to quarantine for two weeks. And we've seen a lot of it with seniors. So there's just hundreds of seniors who have been quarantined to their homes um, for the sole reason that they don't have cell phones. And it's just unacceptable. Yeah. Okay. so if you show up at the border to come back into Canada, let's say you've just driven down like on a day trip and you don't have this app or you don't have that. You don't have even have a cell phone. Like Mm -hmm. what has been happening there? So I've heard from people who have said, you know, I've been told to go quarantine. What are you hearing? It's the same thing. And again, it's a lot of seniors, and but it's not just seniors. There's just been very poor communication on this. People are yeah. very aware they need to follow all the rules. It's been 21 months of help pretty much for everyone in Canada and around the world. So people are trying to follow the rules, but they just there's no advertising of this. People aren't aware of the ArriveCan app. And there's issues with people not, you know, a lot of people can't afford high-cost data plans. So unless you have access to free Wi-Fi, you're not able to upload the app even if you have it on your phone. So it's discriminatory in many, many ways, and we're just receiving a flood of emails and phone calls. People, you know, are missing important cardiologist appointments. I had a constituent reach reach out to me. It took him months to get this critical cardiologist appointment. Now he has to cancel, and ironically, he had to cancel his third booster shot. So now we're keeping people from getting critical health care because they didn't plan to have to quarantine for two weeks because they thought that they were following all the rules. So it really is unfair. Speaking to Conservative MP Raquel Dancho about the uh, ArriveCan smartphone app and some of the troubles with it. So um, obviously, you know, if we have a rule where fully vaccinated, you have to be fully vaccinated to cross the border. I think uh, uh, there's large widespread support for that measure. So you have to have mm-hmm. some sort of system, right, for people to show that they've been vaccinated. Is that what this ArriveCan app does? Like, I've never used the app myself, but you you upload you upload the proof, your proof of vaccination to this app. Yeah. That's what it's for, right? Yeah. So um, what we're seeing is you get your, like everyone in Canada, if you have been double vaccinated, my understanding is everyone gets the sort of official government of Canada proof of vaccination. So uh, seniors, everyone who's crossing the border has this. And then they also often have a negative test result, very official negative test result. Now, the trick is you have to upload both of these official documents onto the app. 
But you would think that you'd be able to just also show those two official documents in your hands to the border agent. But up until recently, the border agent said, no, sorry, it's not on the app. Too bad for you. And it just doesn't really make any sense. That's not keeping anybody safe or just punishing people for not having an app. Okay, you uh, were talk, uh, questioning the federal public safety minister on this mm-hmm. issue in the House of Commons this week, Marco Mendicino, and, and I'll play a clip here of what he had to say to you this week on this point, and then get your thoughts. So here's the public safety minister. With regards to Arrive Can, I want to assure my colleague that I've spoken with the CBSA so that there's additional guidance to provide the opportunity for travelers to provide the information that is necessary on Arrive Can in person at the borders. Okay, CBSA, Canada Border Services Agency there. So he says he's talked to them and what, they've worked out some kind of new rule where if, if you don't if you don't have the app, you can show a paper copy or, or what? You know, we've we're, conservatives have been happy to see that the hard work and the advocacy we've done on behalf of our constituents is making waves within the federal government. We have evidence that CBSA has been told to sort of uh, adjust this a little bit, be more flexible, do it on a case by case basis, let someone pull over and upload the app, help them. So that's yeah. that's a great improvement, but still, it's not good enough. It's not streamlined. It's on a case by case basis. That's open to interpretation depending on the border guard. So we're still concerned that people will be mistreated and wrongfully quarantined despite having done everything right, negative tests, double vax, triple vax. So I appreciate that they've moved on this. Our advocacy has been that strong that they've moved on it, but there's still a lot of work to do. And what we've been advocating for, Mike, in the last couple of days uh, is that now that they're giving some relief at the border to folks who have trouble with the app, we're asking, well, all those that you arbitrarily detained in their homes through the 14-day quarantine, again, despite having all the necessary documents, they should be released so that they can get their cardiologist appointment so that they can get their third booster shot. We had one man, we've had to take two weeks off work. So he's taken all of his vacation. And now again, he's going to be working through Christmas. So second Christmas in a row, he can't spend with his family. So there are things that we can do to release them from quarantine because they have all the documents that keep their neighbors and their community members safe. It just wasn't on the app. Last question for you. I've even heard some people say that they might drive up to the border guard at the border and explain that, oh, I don't have this app on my phone. I didn't know I needed it. Can I just turn around and I'll download it and then come back? And sometimes the border guard will say, okay, go ahead and do that. And other times they won't do it. They won't let you do it. Like, have you heard that too? It just seems to be an inconsistent application of the rules. Yeah, that's just in the last couple of days. I think that that's from the direction of the minister to be more flexible, which we appreciate. But just as you said, on a case-by-case basis, it allows for a lack of consistency. So it's sort of taking a gamble. Oh, I hope I, I hope I get some flexibility since I've been having trouble with the app. Well, what if you don't? And then you have a major plan. And I, uh, what we're calling for is a more streamlined approach that treats Canadians fairly. If you've been there for more than 72 okay. hours and you're... You know, negative test, you should be allowed back in, you know, so long as you're double vaccinated. And that's a practical approach and should be implemented streamlined Ms. across Ms. the country. Ms. Dancho, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much, Mike. Nice to talk to you again. I- All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Canadian hit reality TV series, Highway Through Hell. Are you a fan of this show? Who isn't? This is a great show. This is the show that follows all those heavy tow truck operators, the heavy rescue equipment operators, largely on the Coquihalla Highway, which, of course, is now lying in pieces after the flooding and the man- and the mudslides. I wonder how that's going to affect the TV show. This is a hit show, super popular. It's on Discovery Canada. Let's have a little listen here to Highway Through Hell. Have a listen. What are you doing? Are you a complete moron? I don't like this. Look out! Look out! 
Nasty storm on the Coquihalla Highway. Anybody heading southbound from Merritt with a truck blocking the whole highway? A major wreck has shut down the highway. Thompson, ambulance, and tow trucks. At the scene, the situation is dire. Okay, I love it. A great show. A lot of it is filmed on the Coquihalla. What's going to happen now with the Coquihalla in uh, in a wreck right now? Let's check in with Nicole Tomlinson now. Uh, she is the showrunner for Highway Through Hell, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for coming on. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Hey, Nicole. Congratulations on Highway Through Hell. I think it's an awesome show. How long have you been involved in that show? Uh, since season one, wow. uh, I've done several different roles uh, in in the field and uh, in in the office. And uh, last year, I was uh, given the privilege to uh, step into running the show. So this is uh, the second season for me in that role. But I've been I've been a fan since the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know there's a lot of fans of this show. It's super popular. This show is not just shown. It's not only filmed in British Columbia and shown in Canada, but it, this show is it's around the world, is it not? Yeah, 170 countries. Wow. Wide is is the figure that I've heard tossed around. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. Congrats on all the success, and there, you won awards for it too. So let's talk about the show right now and and the impact of the Coquihalla Highway because. How much of Highway Through Hell is actually filmed on the Coquihalla? So we have a um, a lot of different areas that we film primarily through. We kind of go where our heroes go. Right. Um, so our heavy recovery operators. Um, but the Coquihalla is really uh, the um, you know it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have a heartbeat, um, but it's it's okay. the heart of the show. It's one of our stars, um, yeah. and to um, you know have the the events unfold that have unfolded. Unfold it, it really, um, it really, it really does. It really did feel like um, you know a sense of loss that would be similar to you know your lover affection for um, like like a human. Yeah, I, I I believe it for sure. Like, have you seen some of those aerial aerial images of the Coquihalla broken up into pieces? You must have seen those, right? Well, I can tell you we've shot some, so. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Okay. Like what went through what went through your mind? I mean, you've been over this highway so often over the years with this TV show to to see it broken up into pieces like that. Like what went through your mind when you saw that? I thought about um what the highway really is and what the highway really is is um it moves people to connect families. Uh, if you look around your house, you know, maybe maybe your toilet paper went down the Coke or up the Coke. Um, it, it's really a way for us through uh, the people who who move goods and 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 the heroes on the highway maintenance crews who yeah. um, fight to keep that road maintained and, and safe. It's really a way for us to have a comfortable life um, and to have the things that we want and, and see the people uh, who we love. Uh, that's, that's what all that is to me. So to see the highway in pieces, um, it's feeling a little bit like all those things could, could be in pieces as well, or, or, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a loss there. So that to me is what that highway is. Um, right, no doubt, no doubt. Speaking to Nicole Tomlinson, she is the showrunner of Highway Through Hell. 
uh, the very popular reality TV show filmed largely on the Coquihalla. So, Nicole, what does this mean for the TV show now with the Coquihalla shut down? Well, it means that um, uh, the the people who we have the privilege to follow are uh, in a mission like never before. Um, it feels like an impossible challenge to rise to, but I think we've seen enough, um, even even in the in the media, uh, that reparations are happening um, and and they're rallying. And I can tell you that um, our uh, heavy recovery operators have also been a part of of that. I'm sure a lot of people know that there were several vehicles swept up in the in the mudslide on uh, Highway Seven, the slides. Um, there's some work. Um, it looks like um, we'll actually be uh, going up and uh, doing a um, recovery on the Coquihalla even in the next day or two. So um, our heavy recovery operators, our first responders, uh, they're a key piece to the puzzle uh, to, to clean things up and uh, get the motoring public and uh, the goods um, that we all um, love and have come to enjoy as a, as a part of our quality of life. Moving right, so. again. So, um, and also um, with our highway crews, uh, we've been filming, um, we filmed the immediate aftermath. Um, we filmed, uh, we were there uh, when the highway was being evacuated, two feet of water on the ground, um, you know, um, telling vehicles, turn around, turn around. Um, um, we were there with, with the cameras rolling uh, the moment when it was a race really of life or death um, for, for these people to um, get, get the motoring public um, off the highways. And really, they were the last ones to leave and the first ones to come back. And, and, uh, and, and we were there for that. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like you're going to have some very dramatic footage here for future shows coming up. And as you mentioned, like the guys who, who run these heavy vehicle rescue and rescue recovery towing companies, they're kind of the stars of the, the highway through hell show. Guys like Jamie Davis, who's like the kind of like the star of the show there, runs that towing company out of hope. So all these guys are, you know, these companies are still out there working right now, even though the, the highway shut down. Is that right? Well, I can tell you there's uh, some 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 personal threat to a few of um, the people that we followed for years. Um, one of them um, might be the very individual you're referring to. So Jamie Davis lives in uh, Hope, uh, BC. When all the highways were uh, shut down, Hope was essentially cut off from the world, um, and uh, everyone in Hope was trapped. Right. And uh, and um, Jamie uh, was one of those people who were trapped and by extension, our film crews were trapped. So at the onset of this, we had two film crews in Merritt, two film crews in Hope and two film crews in Abbotsford. We've been embedded in, in these communities for years and years and we form relationships um, and, and, and ties and connections. And so what it really allowed us to do is... Um, you know, pick up and tell those stories from those locations because we were there five months a year while we're filming principal production. So um, that's what we did. Um, wow. We, we, yeah. So, um, so yeah. So you, you will see, um, you will see Jamie Davis um, um, in hope. And uh, we'll also see another character who um, almost lost his home. So, wow. Wow. Um, yeah. Okay, well, that's, that sounds incredible. I'm speaking to Nicole Tomlinson from the Highway Through Hell reality TV show. So, Nicole, when would, when would those episodes be shown on TV? 
well, Discovery Canada will be the ultimate uh, determinant of that. Um, yeah. But I, I can say that if trends continue, uh, we'll be seeing it uh, in the fall of 2022. Okay. Okay. Amazing. Like, what is the production schedule like normally for this show? Like, do you guys normally film through throughout the winter? I guess that's when you get the most dramatic footage up in the Coquihalla and these other highways, I guess, right? Yeah, that's correct. So we usually film October through March. Right. Um, um, you know, we, we've tried to give our fans more and more episodes over the years. So the last few years, we've delivered uh, 18 episodes, uh, 18 one hours. Uh, so we're going to continue to work to um, keep that coming uh, for the people who are fortunate enough to um, want to join us and, and our highway heroes on these amazing adventures in this wild, yeah. wild world that just keeps getting wilder. I, you know, I, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, for me as well, just keeps getting wilder. You, you know, if you would have told me a month ago that, you know, um, this would be the situation, um, you know, anyway, here we are. Well, I guess that, you know, that's what it's like being a showrunner on a reality TV show like this. I mean, reality kind of dictates where the show goes, right? Yes, yes. And for us, too, it's, you know, there's there's other, you know, the spotlight being shone on these things right now. I feel like, you know, there's other people who are interested in the story who, who, coming, who are, are going to come and go. But for us, we have the relationships in these communities. We have huge respect for the individuals who bring us along on these amazing adventures um, and uh, we, we want to respect them and, yeah. uh, and we want to maintain those relationships. So it's been that balance of, you know, um, Hey, you know, how do you feel about us, you know, coming in and talking to you today? Is, is it a good time? You know, and then also I need to say our crews were incredible. You know, they themselves were trapped. So, yeah. Um, you know, they were unable to leave hope at the end of their shifts. They missed time with family. Um, we had, we usually base a lot of our gear for the Fraser Valley out of hope. So um, our crews in the Valley were unable to go to hope and get a lot of things. So we're renting cameras and, and getting vehicles. And, you know, it's, it's our DP, you know, and our sound person who goes and says, you know, we'll go pick up a camera, you know, right. and, and, and the rental vehicle was actually a rental vehicle that, uh, was originally rented for me because I was going to go up. So that was that was rallied into to um, getting some some coverage in the Fraser Valley. And um, despite the I'm sure personal and and deep um, and sometimes hard feelings that our crew has, a lot of our crew has been on the show since the start. Um, they did what they did as storytellers, and uh, and the people who we follow invited us in when they could, even though you know they were frazzled and continue to be and. And, and they had their own feelings and, and hopes and fears. So uh, we have a lot of gratitude for that. And I have a lot of gratitude for our teams on the ground. And, uh, and I, I'm really excited to bring their work to the world. Yeah, that, that's amazing, Nicole. Man, I mean, like this is a real-life human drama right up close here on this show. And now more than ever with this tragedy that's befallen the, the province and what's happened along that corridor where you filmed this show. Let me, let me ask one last thing for you. So you've spent a lot of years on the Highway Through Hell show. You spent a lot of time on that highway in the Coquihalla. And some of the footage on this show over the years have been wild. Like people may be familiar with the incredible footage of these huge 18-wheel trucks being in, you know, off the highway jackknife into a ditch and along comes jamie davis to the rescue and it's just really dramatic incredible footage what what do you think has been like what's the hairiest thing you've ever seen out there during this show like the the craziest thing you've ever seen up on let's say on the coquihalla highway in terms like a rescue or an accident or something 
Oh, my gosh. Okay, <laughs> let's just say I'm not going to be able to top what's happened in the last year. Yeah, right. <laughs> I would have, you know, um, but I did, I was a, a field director out uh, for many years. And I'll tell you, the craziest thing I ever went to, um, hilariously and, you know, um, crazily, um, is the, we had a mudslide. I'm sure um, a lot of uh, people remember on Highway 1 um, a few years back. Yeah. So I directed um, a crew, uh, Jamie Davis, <laughs> yeah. recovered a semi that the mudslide had, had come down on. Luckily, you know, the driver was okay. Everybody was fine. But the mission became, you know, if, if you have something that's mired in mud and these big, huge trees um, that, you know, are underneath it um, and you're trying to pull it out, I can tell you a little silly, you know, dorky highway fact, you know, mud can increase resistance by you know, two times or whatever, right? Depending on how deep it is. So, um, the, the crate, and it, it also gets your boots stuck right good. <laughs> <laughs> so watch your footing. Um, but that, that was the craziest one I ever attended. Okay. Um, when I was out in the field there. Um, and, um, and yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's not really about the, the wrecks. I mean, they are, you know, um, jaw dropping at times, but for me, the best experiences have been watching, you know, these recovery operators tested and rising above the elements and these Herculean things, everything's so big, right? The wreckers are so big and shiny and the, the, the semis are so big and the weather's so big. It's a big show. Um, there's a lot going on, but at the very base of it, there's this very real um, human struggle and human rise to the occasion right. in these like extraordinary conditions so and it sounds like the the shows going forward will be even more so nicole thank you for coming on to share your story today about your work on the show i appreciate it a lot thanks so much for having me it was my pleasure and uh yeah we'll, we'll see what happens next Okay, is that making you hungry there for a little Tim Hortons there? A little uh, Biebs for you, Justin Bieber. What a deal this is. Tim Hortons teaming up with Justin Bieber here to create these Tim bits. And they're now called Tim Biebs. Here's a listen to the ad. Have a listen. Thinking cap. Put on the thinking cap. Yeah. Apricot latte. Yes. No, that's weird. Sorry. Think, Justin. Think. Yeah, get it out. Sour cream chocolate chip. Yes. 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 What if we do a chocolate white fudge? There it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now all we need is a name. Timbits mm. by Justin Bieber. Mm. No? no? Justin Bieber's Timbits. I got it. Timbeebs. It's perfect. Introducing my new Tim Biebs. Birthday cake waffle, sour cream chocolate chip, and chocolate white fudge. Only at Tim's. Okay, it kind of puts a, a smile on my face when I when I see the ad. I don't know why, but I haven't tried the Tim Biebs yet, but I'll tell you what. A lot of people are checking this out. Apparently, this campaign looks successful, at least here in the early days, especially the merchandise. Yeah, of course, they got the merch line to go along with the Tim Biebs. And they've got a toque. They've got a fanny pack. Uh, even people are reselling the Tim's Biebs boxes, the empty boxes online, and making some money on eBay. This sounds like it's a pretty smart move here by Tim Hortons, or is it? Well, let's find out. Let's talk to one of Canada's top experts here in the quick service food industry, Robert Carter. Uh, he's a managing partner at Stratton Hunter Group, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Robert, thank you for coming on today. Hey, great chatting with you again. Okay, it's always interesting to see the the latest trends in this industry, Robert, and you've got your finger on the pulse of it here for sure. So Tim Biebs, Tim Hortons yeah. teaming up with Justin Bieber. What do you think? 
Yeah, interesting. You know, it looks like they've got a got a winning campaign on their hand. And yeah. you know, the idea here is obviously taking a, a household name in the, in the Canadian market, tying tying it into a uh, a pop figure that you know appeals to a, a younger demographic, and then you know getting that younger younger demographic tied into to the Tim Hortons brand. So you know, done a really good job at at positioning this opportunity and and tying that tim hortons brand in with this with this pop sensation so you know this is uh really how the industry is evolving you know back in the day you'd you'd have a promotion on your food you'd have some discounting on pricing and whatnot but you know the restaurant segment needs to become much more strategic and and they're looking at these partnerships as a, a really clever way of of getting to more customers and, and enhancing the brand overall Okay, have you tried the Tim Beebs? <laughs> I have. You have? Yes. You have, okay. I, I have, yeah. We knew they were coming out, so we were, you know, with uh, I have a 15-year-old daughter, so we were uh, at a local Tim's to get it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, she seemed to like it, so. Okay, I, I'm looking at the flavors here. So the flavors are chocolate white fudge, sour cream chocolate chip, and birthday cake waffle. There's some interesting flavors here. What did you think of them when you tried it? You know, it's interesting. And if you look at some of the competitive set, particularly Starbucks, you know, they had the uh, cake pop program there for, for many, many years with one of their better selling products, the birthday cake. So, you know, this is just another example of expanding the core flavor profile, getting into new and exciting flavor combinations to create that excitement for consumers to come in and try it. So, you know, very interesting. And it's, you know, if they had come out with some of their existing flavors against the uh, the Timbits, then it wouldn't have been as exciting. So I think right. this is exactly in line with what consumers like to see uh, overall. Okay, I think the marketing campaign is clever too, and they've got the merchandise yeah. to go with it. They've got tote bags, they got toques, they got a fanny pack, all with the uh, the Tim Beebs logo, and that stuff apparently is hot. Like it's selling out. People are reselling it for a profit on on eBay. I mean, it sounds like, at least on the surface, this is exactly the type of buzz that Tim Hortons would want to generate here with a with a, a promotion like this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you want to look at multiple revenue streams associated with this program. You want to make sure you're targeting, you know, a younger demographic or new customers beyond your core customers as well. So, you know, they're they're firing on all cylinders on this program and it's uh it's been a success and you know, they're going to see great revenue from this. They'll they're going to see a, an influx of new customers coming through. So, and then just tying into the merch is going to be a gateway for them to continue along this path by introducing additional product offerings and, and, you know, that merchandising and branding beyond just the food and the beverages. How much do you think Tim Hortons had to pay Justin Bieber for this? I mean, this guy's an A-list celebrity. It must have cost a fortune. Yeah, I, I would expect he'll have free Tim Hortons for the rest of his life. <laughs> do you think they gave him, like, uh, this is like multi-million dollar deal? It's got to be. Yeah, I, for sure. I think this is probably a uh, big ticket campaign that they uh, put, a, put a lot of, uh, you know, money and resources against. And, you know, it's interesting when you look, again, at the competitive set, you know, we, we see McDonald's using this type of type of strategy in terms of um you know the boy band burger that they tied into uh you know what was that last year or the year before so you're starting in the u.s you see a lot more of the quick service brands tying into some of the pipe uh, pop icons overall so 
you know, it's it's just following that formula in that game yeah. plan. I think we're going to see a lot more of this as we, uh, you know, in the coming years. Right. It seems like McDonald's kind of started this trend. They got it going with the, the Travis Scott meal yes. at McDonald's, yeah. uh, the big wrapper, uh, which was yeah. interesting the way that that started. I was just reading about some of the background on that, and they noticed that Travis Scott had been posting on on his Instagram that he liked eating this particular meal at McDonald's and then McDonald's reached out to him and said, Hey, like, let's get together and, uh, and make some money from this. Travis Scott apparently has made $20 million from this deal with McDonald's for the Travis Scott meal. Then they teamed up with the K-pop, uh, boy, boy band, BTS. You probably, probably your daughter knows more about BTS than we do. Um, (laughs) yeah. So, I mean, like McDonald's right on the kind of the cutting edge of this kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And again, they're they're following a playbook that's uh, you know a number of the QSRs out of the U.S. and even even in China, they've been doing this uh, with a number of the QSRs. So again, it's it's a, a game to make sure you're getting to those younger consumers because now you know everyone's trying to attract. We heard before it's all about the Gen X. Now it's about the Gen Y consumer, which is a big percentage of the population. And this these types of campaigns are geared directly towards that consumer set. Do you think that when you take a look at uh, Tim Hortons, uh, iconic uh, company, um, is it still is it still Canadian owned or is it is it foreign owned now? Tim Hortons, you know. Yeah, it's, it's foreign-owned, so it's owned yeah. by um, Recipe Brands International, but the head office, everything, is still in, in Canada, but okay. RBI is a, a Brazilian uh, right. company. Right, overall. yeah, right. Okay, so, you know, this is a company, though, that I guess the perception on Tim Hortons was that it was in the bit of a slump or some doldrums there, and maybe sure. they were looking, it was, eh? So w- would you say that, you know, is, this is something they're looking to turn that around? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was obviously the the controversy that was going pre-pandemic with uh, Tim Hortons, and you know they were losing favor and brand uh, strength was was waning, and you know the coffee was under attack. So, you know they they needed to change the perception and change the branding, and then you know tie into a to a new uh, focus as they you know look at uh, this was happening pre-pandemic, but obviously as they're coming out of the pandemic. Um, and, and just refresh that brand image, which this is part of that whole campaign. Right. And do you think that this works for them in the United States? Because I guess Tim Hortons is regarded as kind of a Canadian chain, a donut chain, but they've got stores in the United States too. And I know they're promoting this south of the border as well, this Justin Bieber promotion, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Dunkin' Donuts is the big competitor down there for sure, but yeah. this is definitely going to help them within the U.S. marketplace. And I think that's this is where one of the areas. I mean, it's wildly successful in Canada right now, but the U.S. This will be one of their, if not the most successful campaign they've run in the U.S. Uh, to date. Hey, Robert. Last question for you. You know, you're a fast food expert here in Canada. Where is the industry at right now as we continue to slog through the the pandemic? Um, and I know it's been tough in a lot of restaurants. It, it seemed like the quick service sector, though, had kind of weathered some of the storm. If people were looking to get food without going into a restaurant to sit down, things kind of uh, getting back to normal a, a bit, I suppose, in some ways. But wh- where is the quick service restaurant sector at right now? Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, right across the country. It's it, regionally, there's different uh, impacts that are still taking place, um, you know, Alberta and BC and Ontario. But 
overall, the quick service segment continues to be the growth driver of the industry. So, you know, I compared to the you know restaurants where you go in and you sit down and get a meal, the, the quick service segment is the area that consumers continue to gravitate towards. We're seeing a lot of innovation coming through that segment, a lot of the off-premise drive-through. So, you know, c- consumers are responding to that, and, and that's the area that's, um, that they're spending their money at. Robert, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Appreciate it. Yeah, great chatting.